Well, today we get to listen to Jesus. It's not only a have to, it's a get to kind of situation. And he's going to speak to you directly about your anxious heart. And he's going to tell you things that you're going to have a hard time believing. But if you believe them and put them into practice, it'll actually change your life. It will change how you think, how you feel. It'll change how you act. I plan not to take too long to explain to you what he shared because it's simple. The real key is to, as he's going to tell us himself, to put our trust in God and do what Jesus told us. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Help me, Lord, as I open your word. We're in such good company. We stand in the line of people who have known you and trusted you and followed you even unto death for 2,000 years. Help us, Lord, be obedient disciples. There's no point in any of this gathering if we listen to your word and do what we think is best. Help us to do instead what you tell us, what you already know is best. I pray in your name, the name of Jesus, my Savior. Amen. Pastor Rob was talking about being a missionary kid, and it's true, we are different. The literature says that we are third culture kids. In other words, we are those who are not entirely and completely at home anywhere we are. When I was in Mexico, I was a little homesick for Huntington Beach, California. Now that I'm in Huntington Beach, I'm always going to have a very soft spot in my heart for Chihuahua, Mexico, where I grew up. But even missionary kids have cross-cultural encounters. See, Rob was also talking about worldwide impact, and I want you to know that the Great Commission to make disciples of every nation does not belong to Americans alone. The United States has been an absolute powerhouse for centuries in making disciples in other nations but many other nations, because they're Christians too, they've embraced that same word from Jesus to make disciples everywhere. And there are Mexican missionaries all over the world now. In fact, there is a very courageous missionary in Mexico in a part of the world I won't even mention. He's working as a white-collar professional in a very, very dangerous place where should his faith be discovered and the fact that he shares Christ with others, it would almost certainly cost him his life within 24 hours. The Mexican churches have not only reached across the world, they've also reached within their own country. That's why we had some Huichol Indians in our Mexican missions conference shortly before I came here. Uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar, there is a hot sauce called huichol. It's the best thing going. It's hard to find, but if you want, really want to know, ask me after the service. I'll hook you up. That is from central Mexico, from the region where this tribe has lived ancestrally. And these particular people were worshipers of rocks and rivers and trees until the gospel came to them. And some of them were saved, and they began to evangelize and teach the gospel to their own people. So imagine how surprised and thrilled we were as middle-class Mexican people to welcome these folks straight in out of the tribe. And that's where my culture shock began. We knew these folks who lived in homes, for the most part, with no running water and no electricity, living as they had for generations, would be in a bit over their heads in our city of a million people with a Walmart five minutes from my house. 
So we put them, we hosted this Mexican, this indigenous Mexican national pastor and his wife in the simplest home in the entire congregation. There was a godly, there was a godly old lady in the church who was almost 90 years old, who had never married, and she had used her singleness to serve God with all of her heart. She lived in a very simple adobe home not far from the church. She had the by far the most simple lifestyle of anybody in this church, so we thought, we'll put the indigenous Huichol couple with her. That'll be the closest thing to their, the way they're accustomed to living. If we put them at the Westin, who knows what that'll do. Who knows what that'll do to their worldview? And he preached to us, and I'm telling you all about it no more than 20 years later because it made such a deep impact on me. And his main question for our congregation after seeing her home was, we have been in the home of Hermana Manuelita for a week, and we're very grateful for your hospitality. We just have one question. How do you people live with so much stuff? And I thought, if he could see my house, if he could see that I have a desktop and a laptop, if he could see that I have a smartphone, if he could see that I carry about seven different items with me every single day just as part of normal life, if he knew that electricity could destroy my lifestyle in one second, what would he think about my life. You ever notice how much stuff you actually have? Think just a moment about what we're doing here. I'm preaching in a parking lot and people in the Middle East and across Latin America and some in Africa and Europe will see this sermon eventually. It's extraordinary. You're sitting on pretty comfortable chairs, right? God's providing the air conditioning this morning. But you can hear me because there are many thousands of dollars worth of gear making this all possible. And here's the danger of it, and this is what Jesus is going to warn us of this morning. Our extreme accumulation of stuff is normal. If Wi-Fi goes down for one second, you're upset. If they don't have free Wi-Fi, you're really upset. Listen to Jesus, please. Open with me your, open your New Testaments with me in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. And let me talk to you about the anxious lifestyle we're all living through and the anxious lifestyle we've cultivated. Matthew, chapter 6, verse 24. Listen to Jesus. This is going to start fast. It won't take long, but it's going to move fast. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Notice how stark the language is. Love and hate and a choice between masters. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What is Jesus talking about? Can you tell? He tells you in the very next sentence. Will you read with me Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, the last sentence? You cannot, what? You cannot serve God and money. 
If you're keeping notes, let me warn you from Matthew 6, verse 24, that the pursuit of yourself and your stuff will absolutely ruin your life. Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. And the biblical word underneath our English word money used to be translated in older translations of the Bible. Rather, they didn't translate it. They just left it there on the page as an enticement to the reader. Figure out what this means. Some of you know the word that is under there. You cannot serve God and mammon. What is mammon? Mammon is money and wealth and possessions and what you and I would call stuff. It's not just cash. Mammon in the worldview and in the language of Jesus is all the stuff that comes with your life. The 21st century version of this might sound like this. You cannot serve God in a lifestyle. Did you hear that? Jesus says that there will be two masters calling out for your attention and your devotion your whole life. He didn't say coaches. He didn't say friends. He said no one can serve two masters. In other words, you will have one of two masters demanding your attention, demanding your allegiance, asking for your excitement, directing your life, all your life. You have competing bosses. And those bosses, according to Jesus, are God versus money, wealth, possessions, stuff, lifestyle. And in Huntington Beach, California, this is an especially difficult word from Jesus because we define lifestyle for much of the world. There's a, brand, there's a surf brand. I don't know if they're doing this anymore, but I was actually in a little church in Kansas and I noticed that several of the teenagers had t-shirts that said Huntington Beach. I thought, how in the world does someone out here in the sticks, how do they come into knowledge of Huntington Beach, California? So I went around and said, I'm from Huntington Beach. You ever been there? No. Where'd you get this? I think it was Abercrombie that was selling it at the time. They had screens inside the stores, apparently nationwide, with the name of the city giving the weather report. And here's the invitation from Huntington Beach specifically. Come enjoy the lifestyle. See this weather? See this car? See this girl? See this guy? See these clothes? See this stuff? This is the good life. This is what it means to make it. Never mind New York City, truly. If you can make it here, you can make it, Frank Sinatra sang to us, anywhere. And the entire pursuit is lifestyle. And Jesus said in the first century to people who you and I would consider in their vast majority indescribably poor, he said to first century Jews, you have two masters calling for your attention all the time. God is calling for your allegiance, for your love, for your loyalty. God is calling for you to reshape your habits, to reorder your priorities. God will be speaking to you as your rightful creator, master all your life. But there's another master that never shuts up. 
who will always tell you that he will show you a better way to live, that your life will be better if you obey him and his name is money or mammon or lifestyle. And from that moment forward, from that verse forward, Jesus launched into a teaching that is as necessary and timely as anything I can find in all the Bible. Because in the teaching that follows, Jesus is going to tell all of his disciples, having put them at the crossroads of choosing between lifestyle and God, he's going to tell them not to worry about anything. Read with me, Matthew chapter 6 now, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Let's just take it slow. Do you? Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life. Are you? Do you know how high the anxiety rate is among us now? I talk to people every single week and I have to quiet my own heart every single day against anxiety, against fear, against pressure. It's always with us. The pandemic has driven it to pandemic levels. There's more than a virus. There's more than an infection that is ruining lives. There is anxiety. We can't sit still. We need more input. We need things, the very things called electronic devices that have made us so anxious have somewhat viciously become the very things that we use to comfort ourselves from our anxiety. And here's Jesus saying, Matthew 6, verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Jesus tells you, do not be anxious. And I need to tell you on the front side because I know I'm talking to people who are stricken with anxiety. I speak, the, I speak this message to you as someone who wants to obey it, as someone who is a fellow struggler with you. I don't know if it was growing up in Mexico or just the particular way God made me or more likely the way sin broke me, but I have a black belt in worrying about how things might turn out. I can extrapolate one bad situation into an utter disaster. I preach a lousy sermon by the time I'm done with dinner on Sunday night. This campus is a strip mall because I've destroyed the church through that one sermon. And now it's a target, <laughs> further contributing to the lifestyle chase. So I'm not telling you that any of what Jesus has told you is immediate or easy. I'm telling you that it's true. I'm telling you that you need to listen to him. I'm telling you that particularly over the last four or five years, as I went back to school and worked on this sort of thing specifically I've learned to and I'm nowhere near a finished product but I have learned by God's grace much more closely through practice and through obedience how to obey Jesus when he said in Matthew 6 verse 25 therefore I tell you do not be anxious about your life and then Jesus just walks through their life he walks through their stuff. He walks through the things that made them and that make us anxious. I'm just going to read the entire teaching to you. Listen. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. This is outdoors. I'm in good company preaching outdoors. Jesus was outdoors. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? What do you think? Can you worry your way into a better life? No, just the opposite. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. In other words, the lilies of the field outdress their wealthiest king. Listen, listen to Jesus talk to you. I'm going to take a few more minutes to explain what I believe he meant, but just listen to Jesus talk to you. Verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive as tomorrow and, is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious. Second time. He said it in verse 25. He's saying it here again. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Now he's coming down to the heart of the matter. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. In other words, people who do not know God at all wear themselves out seeking the things that are making you anxious. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what's the promise? All these things will be added to you. Listen, this is the verse that's changed my life for the last several years once I understood what he meant and had some idea of how to obey him. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus gave us great reasons not to worry. Here's the first. That whole passage tells you one foundational truth. You matter to your heavenly Father. You cannot possibly fathom how much God loves you. You deal every day as I do with memories of the past and worries for the future and that heaps shame and guilt into your life and your heavenly father has acted in history at his own expense, at his own sacrifice to cover all of that, to forgive your past and assure your future. And the reason Jesus tells you with the simplicity of a direct instruction, do not be anxious he said it twice. Do not be anxious about your life. And at the end, he said, therefore, do not be anxious. In the language of the New Testament, these are not one-time decisions. These are things that have to be committed to and have to be renewed day by day. Because I don't know if you have noticed this, worry comes back. Have you noticed? Worry is a little bit like a boomerang. You can throw it away with great energy and it comes back, it seems, sometimes at twice the speed. The tenderness, the 
love, the care of Jesus, first of all, speaking to his disciples, beginning with the stern warning, I see you at a crossroads choosing between serving and pursuing yourself and your lifestyle and serving and trusting God. Let me warn you, you can't do both. Money is a master and God is a master and you can't have two bosses. You will love one and hate the other. You must choose and you must choose day after day. And the main reason to love and to serve and to trust God and to reject the anxiety that comes with your old way of thinking is because your father cares about you. He loves you so much you can't even begin to completely understand how much he loves you. Romans 8.32, it's printed on your outline. Will you read with me, please, Paul's amazing question in Romans 8.32? Read that Bible verse with me. Paul wrote, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you take Paul's point? Romans 8 is all about suffering and persecution. It's about having confidence in view of the cost of being a Christian. The Romans who received this letter were quite concerned that if they followed Jesus, it would cost them a great deal in life and it might cost them their physical life. They might be killed as some of them eventually were. And Paul's answer is this. Here's how much God loves you. He didn't spare his own son. He gave his own son up for us all. So why would you ever think that along with his son, God won't also give you everything you need? It's hard for me. These verses hit a little closer than they used to. Because as a father, I'd like to think every day I would have the courage to lay my life down for my family. But to think of my son giving his life away for somebody else, no deal. I don't want that. I'll trade lives with him. I'm half dead anyway. <laughs> Let him go on living. Imagine the love of the father to give willingly the life of his son. Imagine the life of the son who does not go as a victim, but willingly goes to meet sin and death and destroy them. Jesus said in the gospel of John, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. Jesus did that because the Father sent him and because the Father, Son, and the Spirit love you. A second reason not to worry is very obvious. Jesus says, first of all, you matter to your heavenly Father, but even more than that, worry doesn't even work. Look, please, in verse 27 again. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? What's his point? You can worry yourself to death, but you can't worry yourself to life. Corey Ten Boom, if you don't know her story, look into it. Read a, a classic of contemporary Christian literature, her story called The Hiding Place. Corey Ten, Boom, Ten Boom's family held people, hid people from the Holocaust 
As the occupation of their country, of the Netherlands, began, they were eventually discovered, and all of Corey's family was eventually put to death in a concentration camp. She alone escaped to tell the story. So she knows what she's talking about regarding worry when she tells us this. Worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength. It's carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. If you worry, if you project yourself into the future, you will rob yourself of the strength that you need to face it. Jesus knew that, which is why 2,000 years earlier, he told you, all of your anxiety is doing you no good. It can't add a single hour to your life. We know, in fact, worry will probably shorten your life. Jesus also says in verse 34 that you already have enough trouble to work. Uh, you have already have enough trouble in the day that you're in. Look in Matthew 6:34 again. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I'm going to get practical and show you a practical way that I have learned to fight off anxiety. But please understand in the first place, worry doesn't work. All it can do is drain you of energy and hope for the day of tomorrow because you're worrying about tomorrow while you're living through today. Fourthly, and the most important thing, what really dominates this passage, the bulk of Jesus' teaching, is that your heavenly Father will take care of you. Jesus says that your Father knows and your father cares, and your father provides. Notice that again and again, Jesus refers to God as your father. Look in verse 30. If God so clothes the grass, grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. Some of you are raising tiny little children. The Lyons family has welcomed into their home an extraordinary human being called Eleanor. That's why Grandma Cindy is here. She's cute. Don't all of you go at once. It'll creep her out. But hang out by the nursery and see this baby. Now, I've actually never, even though uh, my wife and I had a very long lunch with the lions a few weeks ago, and that's when I knew this family was a little bit different because their tiny, tiny little child, who I believe was not even one year old at that time, did not fuss probably over the span of three hours. I've never seen her do much more than frown, and I get that from babies all the time, and she seldom does it. <laughs> but I, raised, I helped my wife raise two babies, so I know that she cries. Does she cry? Two in the morning? What's the usual schedule? That is the word picture, I think, that Jesus is trying to paint here. He's using the most dramatic images he can come up with to reassure us. 
He says, you're worried about clothing and food and what you're going to put on. Look at the birds of the air. They're not stressed and your heavenly father is taking care of them. Look at these flowers around us. They don't have bosses. They don't have org charts. They don't keep schedules. And yet God in his goodness has dressed the lilies of the field with more beauty than King Solomon ever had at the peak of his wealth. The assurance from Jesus is that your heavenly father knows what you need. He cares enough to provide it. And he provides for things that are utterly inconsequential compared to you. Because someone will come along and mow the weeds and cut the flowers down along with the weeds and throw them into a burning oven to get them out of the way. In other words, the ravens flying above us, that's what Luke has in his version of the gospel. Why does that matter? Because ravens are an unclean animal in the law of Moses. Ravens literally then and now are dirty birds. They're creepy animals. You don't keep them as pets. There's a reason that Edgar Allan Poe had a famous poem regarding ravens. That's why the Baltimore team kept that name. It's a menacing little animal. And as Jesus is teaching and ravens fly over, he says, why are you so worried? See those filthy birds flying overhead? They don't have your anxiety, but your father takes care of them. See the flowers and the weeds all around us? Aren't they beautiful? Has it ever occurred to you that this sight, when everything is blooming, is more breathtaking than King Solomon ever was at the height of his best dress day? That's who your heavenly father is. He knows what you need and he has promised to provide it for you. What you need to stop doing is you need to stop worrying because your father knows, your father cares, and your father provides. And when we act as if he didn't know, he didn't care, and he didn't provide, we act as a little baby crying her eyes out at two in the morning, heartbroken because she thinks that no one is coming and that no one will help, little knowing that the people in the next room who will get out of bed once more and wear themselves out and stay up with her will do anything in the world, even to the point of dying for her so that she is safe. Infants cry as if their heart would break because they simply do not know of the love that their parents have for them. They cannot begin to imagine that they were prayed for for years, that dreams were had about them, that paint colors were argued over regarding what color the room is going to be when we finally bring this precious life into the world. And that's us loving our own kids. How much greater is the Father's love for us, the Father who is infinite, who knows everything from the beginning, who never has anything happen in the universe that surprises him, who has everything under his control and uses all of his goodness and all of his strength, not only to care for us, but to actually give his son Jesus to die for our sins, to live in our place and die for our sins so that we could call this great eternal God our heavenly Father other folks, literally, we have nothing to worry about. But we do worry. 
So let's get practical and let me give you some very simple direction on how I am learning. I'm not done. But how Jesus is teaching me and how I am learning not to worry. A disciple of Jesus simply must wage war on worry. You have to fight it every day. Along with new days, Jesus already told you. Jesus isn't being unrealistic. He says each day has enough trouble of its own. You wake up in the world and you know that day you will have trouble. You will have challenges. How do you do it? Here's some very simple and practical direction, and I'm happy to coach you personally and give you more specific and practical help on how this process works. Since Jesus said in verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Number one, you need to engage and re-engage the day that God has given you. Like the old country song says, yesterday's gone. You know the rest of this? Tomorrow may never be mine. The day you can live right here, right now, is this one. This moment right here, to look into this camera, to hold this Bible, to read this gospel passage to you. This is the moment. This is the day. This is what I have to stay engaged in. What does worry do? It drags you into the future. One bad thing will happen, and that will drag you into the future, saying, oh, there we go. I had a flat tire. That's it. If the tires are flat, that probably means the transmission's going. (laughs) And God in heaven knows I can't afford a transmission repair right now. But I need to get to work, so I guess I'll have to borrow the money and fix the transmission, and it's probably going to cost me too much, and then I'm going to miss rent. And if I miss rent... My landlord, who cannot be reasoned with, will be here with the sheriff the very next day. And you've talked yourself into homelessness because you had a flat tire. I hear you laughing. Anybody else do this? That's called anxiety. And it makes you live in a world that does not even exist. A world that is in the future. A world that you may not even make it into. And it saps your ability to deal with what is by dragging you into the future and projecting with all possible negativity every bad thing that could ever happen to you. You need to engage and re-engage the day that God has given you. Here's what it looks like for me. The moment I realize I'm no longer in the present day, but in my mind I am projecting forward with anxiety... The moment I realize that, I tell myself, Bruce, wake up. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Focus on the day right now. And the question I use to wake myself up is, what should I be doing right now? And it might be the thing to do right now is to call AAA. Or ask if anybody can come help me fix the tire. But that's what I should be doing. You have to engage and re-engage and re-engage and re-engage and re-engage the day that God gave you. If you will keep track of your conscious thoughts about life and God, many of you are going to discover tomorrow, or more likely on Tuesday, since tomorrow is a holiday, 
that you aren't really very well engaged in the day you have ever. You're looking back at the past with guilt. You're looking forward at the future with anxiety. Is this making sense to anybody? So keep turning to God. When you realize you're not in the present day, snap out of it, wake up, and get back to the task at hand. Secondly, based on what Jesus has told us, because this passage is all about money and stuff and possessions and wealth and lifestyle and all the things that come with it. Please listen to me, especially if you're a new Christian. If you want to habitually banish anxiety, you need to earn and save and spend and give with an increasing focus on eternity instead of this earth. You're earning, you're saving, you're spending, and you're giving to God all need to increasingly look at the future because all the things that you accumulate here will someday be taken from you. That's why Jesus said in the passage just above before I, stop, before I started reading, stop piling it up here, store it up in heaven instead. There is nothing in Orange County, there is nothing particularly in Huntington Beach that tells you to look at eternity. Nothing. The lie and the lure of this world is make the best possible lifestyle you can for yourself right here, right now. Enjoy it as much as you can. And if you're a particularly good person, leave as much as you can to your kids and that will be the good life. And Jesus says, no, death will take it from you and from them. The only thing that matters with talent and skill and money and possessions and wealth and stuff is not the lifestyle you enjoy here, but the difference you make there in heaven where things last forever. Number three, turn again and again to God for your comfort, your care, and your provision. Some of you are scared to death to do any saving because you feel an obligation through bad habits you've learned to spend all you've got. To make yourself feel better, to have the kind of lifestyle that somebody once told you you could not achieve, to live up to what your parents wanted or live past what your parents told you you could do, what would be possible for you. Some of you are so wrapped up in the culture and the lifestyle of this world that you're tormented by anxiety for the future and tormented by shame about the past. When you discover that, wake up and turn to your heavenly father. He's always watching. He's always listening. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And say to him, father, here I am again. I've got this difficult boss. I've got this difficult job. Bills are coming due. Kids' tuition is due. I'm afraid of what my kids are going to be and do in school after a year in a pandemic. Stop talking to yourself and start talking to your Heavenly Father about it. Remember, when you worry, you talk to yourself. When you pray, you talk to God. And many people confuse worry and prayer. We are so internally torn up that we think we're praying, but we're not praying because we're only talking to ourselves. We're keeping our own counsel, and you're not a very good counselor, or you wouldn't be in the mess you're in already. Talk to your Heavenly Father instead. And then, finally, get back to doing what Jesus told you to do. Put 
God first. Look in Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All these things will be added to you. Earn, save, spend, and give as if God could be taken at his word. If you're only earning and you're never saving, start saving. Because the borrower is slave to the lender. That's in Proverbs. If you're only earning and saving and spending and you're never giving, start giving. Jesus warns you that if you pile it up here, it will someday be taken from you and you will have nothing to look forward to in eternity with the brief talent and skill and money that you were given here. You get right back to doing what Jesus told you to do, which is putting God first. The core of this teaching is simply this, church. The way to not worry about yourself is to always put God first. If you will take God into your week, he will always be there. If you will consciously pay attention to him in this following week, and the moment anxiety comes knocking, you will turn to him and say, Father, I'm doing it again. I've projected three years into the future. I am living all, all, through all kinds of imaginary disasters. I'm sorry. I'm paying attention to this day. These emails, this phone call, this conversation, this task at work, this next project with my kids. Father, I'm here. I'm paying attention to the day you've given me. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow because you have given me today. And five minutes later, you'll get right back into it. The moment you discover that your anxious mind has strayed back into the anxious future where everything is a disaster, you turn to God again and you say, Father, I'm learning. Thank you for your patience with me. I'm learning not to run ahead of you. Help me engage today. And remember, he knows, he cares, and he will provide for you. You keep putting him first. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm here to give you my personal testimony. If you will habitually, day by day, moment by moment, in my case sometimes hour by hour, keep an open channel to God and continually put him ahead of yourself, you will discover a few weeks from now that your anxiety is so much lower and you're living so much more in the kingdom of God instead of the empires of this earth. Let's pray. Father, teach us not to be anxious. We are frail, easily frightened, easily broken people. I say all of this, and I have taught all of this as a man who has been hurt by anxiety. Thank you for all that you've taught me. I know you can teach me so much more. And you can do the same for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would and that you would bless them. And God, if there's a single person here who does not know you, remind them, let them hear the gospel again. You gave your own son. And can I just ask you, do you know Jesus as Savior? If you don't and you've heard the gospel before, can I ask you to make this the moment you turn to him and you're saved, please? And just tell him, I give up on me, Father. I'm sorry for my sin. I am turning towards you. If you do that today, I'd love to know it. Take the card that's in your bulletin and let us know. Send me an email. Send us a text message. We would love to know that Jesus has reached you. Father, dismiss us in your grace. Teach us not to be anxious. Teach us to obey you instead, I pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen.